For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is His Perfect Providence, His Perfect Providence, part two, Romans chapter eight, verse 28. This morning now, in the, in the time afforded to us, uh, we've been given the blessing of continuing a study that we began last week in Romans chapter eight, verse 28, uh, and we are in this brief series, part one and part two now, considering a cherished promise that is given to God's people. Verse 28, and we know, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. If you are united to Jesus Christ through faith, if you are justified in the sight of God through the person and work of his own son, then you have the blessed assurance of knowing that all things, everything that touches the life of the Christian, everything that enters into your experience as a Christian, all things work together for your good. It is a stunning promise when you think about it, a staggering promise, a precious promise to God's people. Now, in part one, we began to expand our understanding of that blessing by first considering the identity of the blessed. Who are those, in verse 28, who can claim the promise? It's not an assurance given to all people, is it? In fact, many people will perish, and all things culminating in their final judgment and in their ultimate death. So not all people can claim the promise. Paul says it's an assurance meant for those who love God to those who are the called according to God's purpose. Those whom God foreknew and predestined according to his own purpose. And in time, those whom God effectually called to himself from death to life, from sin to himself, that he might do them good for the sake of his son and to the praise of his grace. Well, having considered the identity of the blessed in part one, We now move this morning to consider the content of the blessing in part two. Consider with me the content of that blessing. First, the blessing in verse 28, that blessing that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That blessing in verse 28 consists of an assurance, an assurance. Paul describes it as something that you and I know. If you're in Jesus Christ, united to Jesus Christ through faith, this is something that we know, something that we are assured of. Verse 26, we don't know what we should pray for as we ought. Right? We often misunderstand what's best for us. We often misunderstand or don't know even really what we fully need. We don't know our right hand from our left half the time, it seems. But this we know, that God, in his grace, in his mercy, in matchless compassion toward us. God is working all things together for our good, for the good of those who love him, those who are the called according to his purpose. Oftentimes in the Christian life with the difficulties that you and I face, it may not come out of our mouths, right? But it may be sitting there on the back burner that this promise is difficult to believe. With the hardships, the adversity, the difficulties that the Christian often faces, sometimes it can be difficult to lay hold of this promise by faith. Paul wants us to do just that through this passage. He wants us to understand. He wants us to comprehend. He wants us to apprehend this assurance that God is working all things, everything together for our good. There's every reason to believe it on the basis of reason or to believe it on the basis of logic. But this assurance denoted by a single verb in the Greek goes beyond cold reason or goes beyond logical deduction. There could be a word that Paul would use for that. That's not the word that Paul turns to here. Our assurance of this fact expresses an inner conviction. That's what the word here means. This we know. It expresses a conviction that is wrought in the heart by the Spirit of God and is expressed through our faith. What we know of the revealed Word of God 
given to us by God, then affirmed through the Christian's own experience. We come to know that this is true. And God is working all things together for our good. The words we know are not the assertions of a blind faith. The words we know are the assertions of an informed faith. And our faith is informed as we come to know this in our experience. And that doesn't mean, brothers and sisters, that when we consider the promise, verse 28, that we're always going to fully, or even that we're going to partially understand how this all works, or that in every circumstance of our life, that we're going to sense experientially the reality of the promise. Sometimes it's not going to feel that way. Right? We don't always understand the work of God. We don't always understand the wisdom of God. And we cannot presume to comprehend the incomprehensible. We cannot presume to scrut the inscrutable. There are certain things simply that we do not know. But this I know. I know God's ultimate purpose for me. If you're in Jesus Christ, you know. You can be assured of God's ultimate purpose, his ultimate aim for you. He predestined those who are his, he predestined them to be conformed into the image of his own son. He called you to himself, to that end or to that purpose. And those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorifies. Now, I know, Romans chapter eight thirty four. we know, don't we, that he did not spare his own son for us, He did not spare his own son for us, but delivered him up for us all. And he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? There's a tremendous amount of comfort here for the Christian. And these are not empty platitudes. This is not cotton candy comfort, right? This is not Southern comfort food. This is genuine, heartfelt, soul-felt comfort for the Christian with the difficulties that we face, the persecution that has come and certainly will come, the suffering that you go through in this life, all of it, all of it is wrapped into or enveloped into this precious promise from God. It's not empty, is it? It's not shallow. We're to think on this. We're to meditate on this. We're to apprehend it in faith. There's great comfort here for the Christian. This is critical to living the Christian life. To remind yourself when the going gets tough, what is it that God is about in my life? God is about conforming me into the image of his own son that I might be to the praise of his grace in all eternity in heaven with him, right? Making us a fit bride for our bridegroom. We may constantly doubt ourselves, but we may not doubt this, beloved. We know. We know what God's purposes and God's aims are. We know that he is working all things together for our good. I may not understand my circumstances. I may not understand what I should pray for as I ought. I may not be able to wrestle myself out of a paper bag when the going gets tough. But this I know, that God is working all things, even in our most dire circumstances, even in our most perplexing circumstances, God is working all things together for our good. I want to explain that. I want to unpack that for us this morning so that we understand the detail, the specificity which the scripture points to in that precious promise. We're going to look at that today as we look at this part of verse 28. How do we know? How do we know that God is the object of that verb in verse 28? He's not mentioned there specifically, verse 28. How do we know that God is the one who is working all things together for our good? It's because it is God's eternal purpose that stands behind all his work. Who is the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will? The Bible says that God does. Who is the one who is sovereign over all things whatsoever that come to pass? The Bible says it is God. Who is the one who is omnipotent, who is omniscient? Who is the one with the power to work this promise for us? God and God alone. God's eternal purpose stands behind all his work. It is God who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. He is the one who executes his divine will through providence. And if you look at verse 28, he is the one who has purposed. He is the one who has foreknown us. He is the one who has predestined us. He is the one who has called us. He is the one who has justified us. And he is the one who will glorify us. He's the one at work, do you see? He's the one at work. And he has promised in his word, in the Psalms, no good thing 
No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Now first, the blessing of verse 28 consists of an absolute assurance. This we know. Be assured of this, brother, right? Be assured of this, sister. We can take it to the bank. God is working all things together for our good. Second, second, this blessing then consists of a promise. What is it that we should be assured of? Literally in the Greek, all things God is working together toward or into good. All things God is working together toward or into good. God is presently at work in all things as it pertains to the Christian, as it pertains to your life, your circumstances. God is at work in all things to coordinate all those things together for your ultimate good, for those who love God, for those who are the called ones according to his purpose. Now notice the promise applies here to all things, not some things and not simply really big things, but all things, sad or glad, God is working in all things. There's no limitation that's indicated in the word. In God's revealed word, he promises to be work at work in all things pertaining to your good. Every experience, the full succession of moments that comprise the entirety of your life, God is at work in them. It's, am- it's an amazing thought, right? We, it's hard for us to understand. That's a staggering thing. God is at work in every detail. The very hairs of your head are numbered. All of your days, every one of them, every succession of moments, planned, God says, fashioned for you before you even existed. God at work in all things for your good. In our context, that includes every groan, every pain, every trial, every sorrow. From verse 35, every tribulation, every distress, every persecution, every hunger, nakedness, peril, or sword. God is at work in all things to ultimately do you good. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Think with me for a moment. The Lord asks, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of those sparrows falls to the ground apart from your father's foresight. Is that what the Bible says there? No. Not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father looking down the corridor of time and seeing what will happen. And then make, is that what the Bible says? No. Two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. Apart from your father's will. God is at work in all things, amen? And as much as he wills, as much as he wills the fall of the sparrow, he wills and works all of the means by which the sparrow falls. Do you see? He is at work in all things. What's the implication of that? Brother, sister, do not fear. You are of far more value than many sparrows. When you face difficulty, when you face trial, you are of far more of value than many sparrows. Why do we worry? Why do we fear? Why do we become so faithless in difficulty, in trial? Don't fear. Don't fear. God is at work in your circumstances. All things will work out ultimately for your good. Even if you were to die, that promise is inviolable, do you see? God, who cannot lie, has promised to you. Now notice further. Notice the aim toward which God is actively working in all things. Notice the aim. He is working them together for good. For good. Paul does not say that God is working all things together for good to all people. He doesn't say that. He says rather that God is working together for good all things to those who love him to those he is effectually called according to his eternal purpose and will. He's working all things together for their good. Paul does not say that all things themselves will be good. (laughs) That is an important distinction, okay? Suffering in itself is not good. Death in itself is not good. 
but it may serve a good end. Amen? Not all of your decisions will be good. (laughs) Praise God that in many of your ignorant decisions, God is still working those decisions to your good. Overcoming your ignorance, overcoming your foolishness, to ultimately do you good. How merciful, how gracious is God, right? Not all the consequences of your decisions will turn out to be good. We're not compelled by the text to somehow Pollyanna pretend that everything's going to be okay. Everything is great. Everything, how you doing? Everything is good. No, not everything is always good. But we can be assured of the fact that God is working together those things for our good. Rather, the words here, for good, express the goal or the aim of God's omnipotent working in all things. Our God, who works all things after the counsel of his own will, takes all things pertaining to you, even those things which are not good in and of themselves, and he works those things together for your good. We don't always know when that good is attained, do we? Sometimes the pain persists. We don't know ultimately how that good is brought about, but we do know that ultimately all things end in our eternal good. That's the aim. But the present active work of God in this does suggest that though we know the ultimate end or the ultimate aim, the use of this word does suggest that there is an experience on the part of a Christian of present good, an ongoing experience of present good as well. Even those circumstances are often not good in and of themselves. We can experience good at the hand of God in this life. Thomas Watson used a medical analogy to help explain this for us. He said this, I think this is helpful. Several poisonous ingredients put together, being tempered by the skill of the apothecary, make a sovereign medicine and work together for the good of the patient. Several poisonous ingredients that if you were to take them by themselves would not do you good, but mixed together, tempered with the skill of the apothecary, make a sovereign medicine and work together for the good of the patient. So all God's providences being divinely tempered and divinely sanctified work together for the best to the saints. God knows how to do it. Amen. That is divine omniscience, divine omnisapience, God knowing all things, knowing how to do them, knowing how to apply them. Works out for the best, for the good. It does not mean that it's going to work out for the earthly comfort of those who are the called according to his purpose. It doesn't mean that it's going to work out for the temporary pleasure of those who love God or for the leisure of those who love God. Nor does it mean that every bad will somehow be one-to-one correlated with a good that is attached to it. It's not what the text is saying. Contrary to health, wealth, prosperity, heretics, faithful Christians have and certainly will face sickness, poverty, and failure. We can expect suffering in the Christian life. Some will face those things all of their Christian lives. Their entire life will be an experience of sickness, poverty, or failure. God does not promise that all things will be good, but rather that all things will work together for the ultimate aim of doing us good. And it's often, as James says, it's often the testing of our faith that produces good. Testing of our faith that produces patience. And it's the testing of that faith that produces a patience so that we may be what? perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Is that good? Amen. And God works through those difficulties to bring that about. Remember the Bible says that Jesus Christ, our Lord, the captain of our salvation was made perfect or made complete through what? Suffering. That which in and of itself is not good, but it brought about a good end, didn't it? God in the Old Testament is frequently referred to as the great refiner. He puts his people through the fire that he might do them good. The fire of adversity, the fire of difficulty, the fire of hardship. Listen to Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 9. God promises to put his people through the fire. He says, I will refine them as silver is refined. I will test them as gold is tested. How is silver refined? How is gold tested? It's refined or tested in the heat of the furnace. 
the furnace of adversity, the furnace of difficulty. Then the Lord says, they will call on my name and then I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Is that good? Amen. It's good. The great refiner uses fire. And the great refiner uses fire to expose and then to remove the dross of their impurity to remove their iniquity. He plunges us into the fire and he removes our dross. And the more and more and more that the Christian is exposed to the fire, the more and more and more of our impurity is scraped away and the more and the more and the more in the reflection of that steel (laughs) does God see the reflection of his own son. That in that he does us good, even through difficulty, even through hardship. Good, this word, Romans eight twenty eight is defined as that which is to our advantage, that which is to our benefit. It's often through difficulty and adversity that God accomplishes good for us, that he accomplishes that which is to our advantage or that which is for our benefit. It's how he conforms us into the image of his son, and that's good. Right? The suffering is for our benefit. The word good in Greek also denotes usefulness. It's a word that can mean useful. How does God bring about increasing usefulness in the life of a Christian? Through difficulty, through adversity. Many of you have been through hardships, and we've walked through those together, right? (laughs) Many of us, we've walked through those hardships together. And We can agree, can't we, that in going through that hardship, we see God at work in it to train us up, to mature us, to grow us, so that 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we may comfort those with the same comfort with which we have been comforted, (laughs) right? God, through trial, through difficulty, increases your capacity to minister to the saint. He increases your usefulness. The parable of the vine and the branches, We are the branches. We're vitally connected to the vine. Those who are apart from him can do, they're useless. Apart from him, you are useless. But if you're vitally connected to the vine, then what does he do with the branches? He prunes them. He cuts them back. That pruning, he says, John chapter 10, is not pleasant, but it's painful for a period of time. Why does he do it? So that we can bear much more fruit. Usefulness, right? It's a word that also denotes usefulness. God is working through all things to make us useful or fruitful. Worship, service, ministering to the saints. The psalmist said that it is good for me that I have been afflicted that I may learn your statutes. The psalmist said it is good that we're afflicted. Even now, right, brother, sister, even now, we can look back over our Christian lives and see that this is so. Right? We know, we know every difficulty, some of the most difficult times of our lives. You know, I remember one time, we as a church had gone through a very difficult time some time ago. And I remember in a membership meeting, us talking, and I asked the question, how many of you, right? How many of you, with a clear conscience before God, how many of you would go back and remove that difficulty, that hardship, that adversity, so that we, weren't, that we didn't have to go through any of that, right? And not, a one, not one person raised their hand. Why? Because we see the good that God did for us and to us and through us as a result of that hardship, that difficulty. God is always at work for our good. He is working everything, all things together for our good. And he is faithful to that promise. Verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. What a tremendous encouragement to God's people, amen? Now, in part one, we consider the identity of the blessed or the recipients of the blessing, namely those who love God, those who are the called ones. This morning in part two, we've considered the content of the blessing, the assurance that God himself is working all things together for our good. Now, finally, in closing, I want us to consider the basis of the blessing, the basis of the blessing. He ensures that all things take place according to his purpose. Why is it 
that we can trust God when he says, when Paul says in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for our good, why is it that we can trust that? What is the basis for our assurance? What's the basis of our confidence? God, who cannot lie, has promised. And God works all things after the counsel of his own will. What is his will toward you? What is his will toward me? Good. Good in our Lord Jesus Christ. Good because you are united to Jesus Christ. Good because Jesus Christ has shed his own blood to redeem you. And having delivered up his own son for us, how much more then will he freely give us all things? His purpose toward you, Christian, is good. We can somehow, sometimes, forget that or deny that. We can get ourselves in a fit where we're complaining about our circumstances or having difficulty and we forget that God is working all things together for our good, but that's true. That's true. All things are working together for our good if you're in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because we're somehow deserving of that, but because Jesus Christ is deserving of that. He is conforming us into the image of his own son. And as he is in this world, so am I. Amen? So God is going to work all things together for our good because that is his divine purpose. He works in time and space to do that, to accomplish all of his decreed will. God works in time and space to accomplish all of his divine purpose. There's no such thing as chance, in other words. There's no such thing as fate. There's no such thing as fortune or luck. No such thing. But only, rather, the sovereign superintendence of our omnipotent, omniscient God who works all things after the counsel of his own will. This world replaces God. They deny God with chance. They replace God with mother nature, with laws of nature and the like. No such thing. They go through difficulty, and it's just a run of bad luck. Happened by accident. No, it didn't. Luck, chance, fate is a denial of God. The scriptures are unapologetically clear. There is no, there's no shadow around these things. These things are not shadowy. They're not up for debate. The scriptures are crystal clear. God works together all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his eternal purpose, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Repeat that <laughs> over and over and over again. Let it sink into our hearts and minds. We somehow have difficulty apprehending that fact. God works all things. He is working. Working. That implies active Work in each succession of moment, as it were. He is working all things according to the counsel of his own decreed and immutable, unchangeable will. That working, when the Bible says that he is working, that working is a reference to God's providence. It's the title of our sermon, his perfect providence. His sovereign providential working, his work extending to nations, extending to nature, extending even to the decisions and actions of men. From the smallest microscopic particles to the largest galaxies in the expanse of this expanseless universe, God is at work. This is the doctrine of God's providence. Heidelberg Catechism describes God's providence as this. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his own hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That's a good definition. God's working in providence to execute his divine will. The word providence comes from a Latin word meaning to provide before, to provide before, or to provide with foresight, with understanding. It's the same Latin participle from which we derive our English word provision. Pro meaning before, vision, right? Seeing before, understanding before. And so making 
provision for something that is going to happen or going to come about. So when we speak of God's providence, we're speaking of God working to bring about, to make provision for the accomplishment of his divine will. God's divine will, his decree takes place in eternity. God has decreed all things whatsoever that come to pass. That decree takes place in the eternal counsels of the Godhead. God then works. He works in time and space to make provision, provision for their accomplishment, for their divine accomplishment. And he works, as it were, by his providence. That's not passive. As though God were only seeing those things that would come about. That is active. We can't think of the root verb there as something that is passive. It is providing. It is actively working toward the accomplishment of a future goal or a future aim. Let me give you an example of that. You determined to be here this morning for worship. You determined to be here. Maybe you were drug here. (laughs) And you were determined to fight it, but you lost the battle and now you're here. Um, you determined to be here this morning for worship. And then, seeing before, making provision for the accomplishment of that aim, you made provisions, as it were. You worked, you got dressed, drove your car, some of you did your hair, uh, some of you brushed your teeth. But you, you, you made it. <laughs> you made provisions to come to church, and you came to church. You accomplished the end, all right? You accomplished the aim. God, in his providence, is providing, or he is directing circumstances before for the accomplishment of his ultimate purpose. Listen to this from Isaiah 46, verse 9. Listen to this from Isaiah. God says, verse 9, For I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. The gods of every other religion on the planet are false gods. They're idols. They're nothing compared to God. God alone is God. And if you follow God as it were, God as he has revealed himself, to his logical conclusion, he alone is God. Gods of all the other religions on the world, in the world, false gods, idols. There is none like the true and living God. And how is he distinguished from all of those so-called false idols? Verse 10, he declares the end from the beginning. There's so much prophecy in scripture. It's amazing. And so much prophecy with specificity. God is the one who declares, he decrees the end from the very beginning. And then he works in his providence to bring about that declared end. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. He calls a bird of prey from the east. He calls the man who executes my counsel from a far country. God says, indeed, I have spoken it. Indeed, I will also bring it to pass. What is that? That's God's providence. He says, I have purposed it. I also do it. Well, how does he do it? He does it through his perfect providence. And notice, again, Isaiah 49, 46. God doesn't merely know the future. He doesn't merely know the future. There are those who idolize free will, who somehow want to say that free will, man's sinful, rebellious man's free will, stands above the sovereign purposes and decreed will of almighty God, such that almighty, omnipotent God is somehow subject to their free will? Give me a break. That is absurd, stupid. Open your Bibles. God declares the end from the beginning and works all things after the counsel of his own will. He has purposed it. He will do it. God doesn't merely know the future. God knows the future because he decreed the future. He has written the script And he will absolutely bring about that which he has decreed, and he brings that about through his providence. Now, a classical text, a locus classicus, if you will, for the doctrine of God's providence is found in Genesis 50. And I want to go there for just a moment. Genesis chapter 50, 
Let's look at one example of this. There are examples all over the Bible of this very thing. Let's look for a moment at Genesis chapter 50. And look there beginning at verse 15. Verse 15. Because of envy, the sons of Jacob, the brothers of Joseph, have plotted his demise. They've sold Joseph into slavery, covered his coat of many colors with the blood of a goat, lied to their father about what happened to him. Joseph, as a result of all this, winds up in Egypt, where Joseph rises to power, second only to Pharaoh. And it's at that time that God then brings a great famine on the land. Who is it that brings a great famine? God brings a great famine. Who is it that brings rain? God brings rain. Who is it that gives plenty? God does. Who is it that gives famine, want, scarcity? God does, right? God is sovereign over all things whatsoever that come to pass. Through the providence of God, God's working, Joseph is then reconciled to his father, reconciled to his brothers, and now Jacob has died. So pick up with me at verse 15. Their father has died, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us. Joseph is now very powerful. Joseph, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph. They didn't want to to go themselves. They sent messengers ahead saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin for they did evil to you. Now, what did they do? They did sin and they did evil to Joseph. That's what they did. That was the intention of their heart. That's what they accomplished. They did it. Do you see? Now he goes on. Please forgive the trespass of the servants of of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down then before his face. And they said, behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. For am I in the place of God? That's an interesting rhetorical question. (laughs) The obvious answer is no. Joseph is not in the place of God. Joseph, Joseph is making a statement there. Am I in the place of God? Joseph is making a statement there about his role in the whole affair. Joseph's place or Joseph's role. Joseph rightly sees his place in the whole thing. He sees himself as a means. I'm simply a means. God is the one who is decreed, and God is the one who is accomplishing all his purpose. I'm just a player, if you will, a pawn in this. I'm the means, a means that God has used. I'm not in the place of decreeing. I'm not in the place of passing judgment. I'm not in the place of God. I'm just a means. I'm God's instrument, God's servant, God's slave. If you remember, Moses making the opposite error, one time put himself in the place of God and struck the rock in anger, right? And, and Moses was denied interest into the, into the promised land as a result of that. He got fed up with the complaining Israelites and acted in the place of God against them. Joseph sees the error of that. And Joseph understands God's decree, understands God's providence, that God is accomplishing his, his decreed will and Joseph is merely a means to his ends. Now, Joseph further clarifies that in verse 20. Verse 20, but as for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about it as it is this day to save many people alive. He does not say, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God used it for good. You notice that? He doesn't say that, that God used it for good. God meant it for good. What is that? Support. It supports the fact that God works sovereignly all things together according to the counsel of his own will. God meant it for good. Now that's the lesson of the account of Joseph. We sit in the audience, so to speak, and we watch, as it were, the divine masterpiece played out upon the stage of history. And we come to understand something of the work of our gracious God who works together all things for our good. All of the apparent chaos in the world, for all of the evil in the world, for all of the wickedness of fallen men, God is at sovereign work through divine 
omnipotent providence to bring all things to their God-glorifying and therefore good end or good purpose. Despite all of the wickedness, despite all the difficulty, all the suffering, all the hardship, right? despite all of that filth and degradation and devastation that you see all around us in our country even today, God is sovereignly at work, not merely in spite of it, but intending through it to bring about all of his good decreed purpose. Through his providence, God is working all things to their God-glorifying and therefore good end. The serpent meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Pharaoh meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Judas meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Here, the brothers of Joseph meant it for evil against Joseph, but God himself meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. How does this work? I don't know. <laughs> it's a mystery. It's a, it's a difficult mystery. Concerning, think with me for a moment. Think with me. Concerning God's providence, this is called the doctrine of concurrence. The doctrine of concurrence. Now think. There are two rivers here. Two rivers that converge into one in verse 20. You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. Two rivers that converge into one. There is a confluence, if you will, of intentions, a confluence of purposes. The brothers sinned, they hated, they plotted, they reasoned within themselves, they acted in accord with their own hearts, they determined their course of action, and they acted intending, meaning, to do evil against Joseph. They acted freely, and because they acted freely, they are therefore morally responsible for their actions, and they are accountable to God for what they did. Do you see? And at the same time, a confluence, if you will, of two rivers, a convergence of two rivers, God decreed, God determined, and God freely acted in according with it, accordance with his own will, God brought about his divine purpose and divine ends. The brothers of Joseph, though they acted freely, were not acting alone. Do you see? God was acting in and through their choice to bring about his decreed purpose. Amazing, isn't it? He was working even in and through their sin, their wicked intentions, their wicked actions, their wicked aims to bring about his purposes. That does not mean that God is the author of evil. It does not mean that God is the author of sin, that God creates sin or creates evil. He doesn't tempt anyone to sin. James makes that clear. But it does mean that God is sovereign even over sin. Even over my sin? Even over my sin. Even over your sin? even over your sin. God is sovereign. Their intent, the intent of the brothers, was Joseph's destruction. God's intention, God's intention, God's decreed purpose from the beginning was the salvation of many lives. The activity of God and the activity of men, in verse 20, converge, and from that convergence, God's will is the will that is accomplished. And it's accomplished in its fullness, do you see? Joseph's brothers faced the consequences of their wicked actions. They faced the consequences of that sin. And that was for God's intended purpose, that God, there in Christ, through faith, for God to do them good. And God's will was done, was determined, and was carried out for him to save many lives as it is to this day. God's intention, man's intention. How God does that is a mystery. It's the great mystery of providence. The greatest example of that is at the cross, where Peter says, it was by the determined purpose of God that lawless hands 
took him and crucified him. Do you see? The men who took him and crucified him were lawless, sinful. The greatest sin perpetrated on the face of the earth was to crucify the innocent son of God. They took him by lawless hands according to God's predetermined purpose and will. God executing in his providence to do what? To do us good. Amazing. This I know, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. If you're not united to Jesus Christ through faith, then this doctrine is of no comfort to you. And if you've not turned from your sin, if you're not trusting Jesus Christ, if you're living for yourself, and you're living after your own ends and purposes, and that's going to end in your death, you'll perish, and you'll be in torment. Everything in your life, even now, merely leading inexorably to your own destruction. God has to intervene for your good. God has to intervene prayerfully to soften your heart. Why are you so obstinate against him? Why to this point are you so stubborn and will will not? He is gracious and he is merciful. He is abounding in grace. Why will you not abandon your life to live for him when he has promised such great and glorious promises to us? Why would you not? It's because you're obstinate in your sin. You somehow believe that it's all gonna work out in the end. However you convince yourself, ah, there's no God. You know that's a lie. You know that's a lie. All gonna work out in the end. My good's gonna outweigh my bad. You know that is a lie. You have sinned against him. And every crime, you're gonna do the time. You know it's a lie. You continue to justify yourself. You continue to explain it all away. Ah, it's just evolution, evolution. That's a, not only is that a lie, that's a stupid lie. That thing has been debunked so many times now. It's it's ridiculous. Abandon the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world is foolishness. And yet you continue obstinately in your sin. Why? You're hard-hearted. God, if uh, you're not, if you don't turn to him, Romans chapter one says that God will eventually give you exactly what you want. He'll turn you over to exactly what you want, which is your sin. God is not, there's a, a heresy called equal ultimacy, which means that as actively as God works in the hearts of those who are his to bring them to salvation, God actively works in the hearts of those who are not his to bring them to damnation. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's a heresy. All God has to do is to step back, let you have what you want. Why is that? It's because you're born dead in trespasses and sins. You have a sinful nature, and that's what you want. Acknowledge it. Acknowledge it and turn to Christ in faith, trusting, trusting that he can save you trusting that he will turn you from the wicked desires of your heart to him, our treasure, to Jesus Christ as precious. If you are not in union with Jesus Christ, if you've not abandoned your life to him in faith, then nothing good awaits you but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. But brothers and sisters, if you have turned to Christ in faith, a text that we're about to get to, It's going to close this section of the book of Romans, verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, then who? (laughs) Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God himself who justifies Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen from the dead, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one and no thing. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? God's will is inviolable. No one will turn his hand. As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long, we're accounted for sheep as the slaughter, yet in all these things we are invincible. 
We are more than conquerors through him who loved us and is working all things together for our good. I am persuaded, Paul says, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a precious promise, amen? Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we rejoice in your word to us. We rejoice in your grace and mercy toward us. We rejoice in the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We rejoice, Lord, that you intervened, interposed, as it were, to do us good through him. You've made provision for our sin. You effectually called us, bringing us to regeneration, new birth, calling us from life or from death to life, working in us, authoring in us faith and repentance, whereby we now with renewed mind, with a renewed heart, with renewed affections, look to Jesus Christ as our greatest treasure, as truly precious, who gave him his own self, gave his body on the tree, bearing our sin and shame, to die in our place, suffering the wrath that was rightly reserved for us. Thank you, Lord, for this indescribable gift. I pray that no one here would reject it, would turn away in their obstinacy, turn away in their intransigence, turn away in their stubborn hearts, their stubborn wills to go off now again living life for themselves but that rather they would turn to you. They would humble themselves. They would see it as the stinking pride that it is to reject you and to turn back to their filth, back to their darkness, but rather that they would see that for what it is and would turn to you in faith for the fresh, clear, living water that you provide through the gospel that they might live. Help us, Lord, to live in light of these promises that we have from you that we might live as more than conquerors through him who loved us. And may it be for your everlasting praise and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.